just want to say thank you for the um, incredible gift you've given to us of the death of Christ and the atoning sacrifice that he made that has cleansed us from sin. We come before you this morning, Lord, just in love with you and grateful for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to Grace. I want to ask the ushers to come forward and to take our offering. Uh, While they're doing that, I would like to ask Paul Gustafson to come forward. And um, we're going to pray over Paul. He is our new elder. And so, um, yeah. And then other elders can come forward, and we're going we're to pray over Paul. Paul, we're, we're grateful that you are, you've joined our elder board, and we're grateful for your leadership. And I'm going to pass this on to you guys, and we're going we're gonna to pray over Paul. You're on. Yep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for uh, the gift of your grace and the gift of the mercy that you've shown to us. Thanks for Paul. Thanks for his wife and his life and, and his witness and his determined desire to serve you and to uh, lead uh, this church and this congregation with wisdom and strength and courage. Uh, pray for protection over him and his, and his family. And that, Father, you would bless him in all that he does through his days. Now, Father, I just thank you for your love for Paul and his family. I ask you to bless them. I ask that you protect and watch over them. And, Father, especially we ask now that you would deepen relationship with him, that you would empower him with your divine discernment and his leadership needs that he has. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen his inner man. And Lord God, we just uh, we do thank you for bringing Paul to us, and we ask now that you would uh, just bless this new um, portion of his ministry, and that you would lead him and guide him, and direct them in the in the way, Father, that um, that you could best use him and, and glorify your name, Father. Now, Father, I just thank you for Paul and his servant's heart, his willing spirit to serve your kingdom, Lord. Just I pray you. Give him wisdom and all he does. He can hear clearly from you to serve you in that way, Lord. And just pray your protection over him and his family as they, they serve you and that they have no demonic attacks. Uh, and just bless his time, Lord, that his new duties wouldn't be a big burden to him. Father, thanks for Paul. Thanks, Lord, for his service in many, many uh, areas of our city. Lord, I pray specifically for his service of grace, that you would empower him by your Holy Spirit to serve well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. I am incredibly grateful for our elders and for their service to our church. Um, they uh, go above and beyond in, in so many ways. Um, I know that probably most of you have been looking at the, uh, at the, hur- the path of Hurricane Irma this morning. Um, my parents are living in Naples, Florida, and so they are in that direct path. Um, they've chosen to hunker down behind uh, uh, hurricane-proof windows, or so they say. And so, uh, but we're also praying for the victims of the hurricane in Cuba. A lot of our partners were hit pretty significantly by that hurricane. Um, we, our mission group is going is to go to Cuba in October, so the nature of our ministry there may change a little bit. 
And then uh, people are still recovering from Hurricane Harvey, and I've seen some pictures recently that there are still places that are flooded. So, um, you know, we, we, have, uh, we have, I'm sure, a lot that we can, we can pray over. What I'd like to do right now is if, if, if anybody has a family member directly impacted by Irma or Harvey, could you just stand? Could you stand if anybody has a family directly impacted? Those of you who are around them, will you just lay hands on them and, and pray uh, for the, uh, those who are struggling? Um, you know, just pray as God leads you, but uh, let's, let's just spend some time praying for those who have loved ones in the path of those hurricanes. Father, we've been uh, pretty amazed, astonished as we've seen the power of these, these two storms. Um, they are, they've been unbelievably powerful and, and we humble ourselves, Lord, before power that's beyond our control. Lord God, I want to pray that you would give those who stood uh, the wisdom to know how to love and serve uh, their loved ones who have been affected by these hurricanes. Father, we're, we're um, asking that you would allow us as well to be a conduit of encouragement um, as, we, um, as we have some op- op- opportunities to, to give to these relief efforts. Uh, thank you, Father, for uh, the stories that we've heard of people in serving incredibly uh, down in Houston. I know the same is, is also happening in Florida as well. Father, we ask for your grace and your mercy on our country as we, as we serve those who, who have really struggled with this. In Jesus' name, amen. As you're sitting, I'll remind you as well that we uh, have our family fun night tonight, uh, 5.30. Would love to have you be there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're starting a new series this week called Kingdom Culture, and it's a series where we're going to talk about experiencing and extending God's transforming love. We're going to be talking about what the kingdom is, why it's important to know what the kingdom is, and how to live in the, the context of God's, God's, kingdom, God's kingdom power. Um, I want to start this morning by talking about what it means to live inside a supernatural worldview, and what does the culture of that kingdom worldview look like? I want to talk about what would it be like if this week, this month, this year... We could live inside a kingdom worldview, a supernatural worldview that would empower us and move us forward. So I'm excited about, about this series. It's going to be four weeks long. This is week one. And I want to start by getting you to think about kingdoms and their cultures. Many of you have, have read the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you know that there are two kingdoms represented, one evil, one good. These pictures represent the kingdom of Sauron, that malevolent spirit, 
who wants to dominate and control Middle Earth. If you read the book, you read the movie, um, this is an evil force. And this guy, Sauron, can't really achieve all of his power until he gets his hands on that ring of power. And so his eyes are searching to and fro throughout Middle Earth that he might find that ring and grasp full power. On the other hand, there's a good kingdom. That's a kingdom that was represented by Rivendell and by Gondor and by the high king of Gondor, who is Aragorn. And Aragorn is seeking to release the goodness of his realm into the entirety of Middle-earth. And you've got two kings, two cultures, one profoundly evil, one striving to be good, and um, you've got the fellowship of the nine trying to get that ring and unmake it so that evil does not totally dominate inside Middle-earth. Now, I want you to think about, about how, how cultures work. I talk a lot about cultures at Grace because cultures are the values, they're the habits, they're the customs of a particular group. And whenever you enter into a particular place, you feel culture before you can articulate it. You feel some things about it before you can talk about it. That's why, you know, if you think about the culture of McDonald's and Starbucks, it's a very different kind of culture than a high-end restaurant like the Leadbury in London. Leadbury right now is the, is the number one restaurant in the world. Now, I promise you, if you, if I've not eaten there, but I've heard it's really good. If you walk into the Leadbury, its culture is going to be different than McDonald's. It's just going to be different. And you're going to walk into the Leadbury, and you're going to feel the difference before you verbally can articulate what that difference is. Whenever an organization experiences some sort of leadership or direction, there's culture to that. And there's also culture to the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And so this morning I want to show you what that kingdom is like from Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, as you know, is a genealogy. So you think, my gosh, how can, you, how can you discover kingdom culture through a genealogy? Well, Matthew wrote that genealogy to give us information about kingdom culture. So I want to start by, by reading the genealogy, of just the first part of it, to give you a flavor for what's said here before we tangle into the story behind it. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Right off, we know about this genealogy that it was meant to be memorized because it's going to be structured around the son of Je Jesus, the son of David, going back to Abraham. But he begins back in Abraham's day. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. We could go on, but I'll, I'll spare you the rest of the details. It's a genealogy. 
And, and what I want you to focus in on first is Jesse, the father of David, the king. And so we have to start off by asking the question, what is kingship in the Bible? Why does the first book of the New Testament start off in the first chapter with a statement about the king and Jesus having something to do with that king? What does kingship and kingdom mean in the Bible? Well, let me start with some background. This concept of kingdom is hugely important to the ministry of Jesus. In Matthew 3, verse 2, John the Baptist is doing open-air ministry by the river, and crowds are surrounding him, and as he preaches, he cries out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What he meant by that was, it's near, it's here, and you should be looking to live inside it. Jesus uses those exact same words. I mean, these are the same nine words in Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, reading between the lines, I take it that because these exact phrases are repeated in Matthew's gospel, this was something that Jesus said frequently at the beginning of his ministry. But what exactly does the notion of kingdom mean? We don't live in a kingdom. We live in a constitutional republic. We don't feel feelings associated with kingdom and kingship. My daughter does. My daughter's married to a guy from the UK, and, and they have feelings about kingdom. Not sometimes good, sometimes not so good. But we don't have feelings about kingship. They did back then. Uh, what does it mean? Well, the word king, kingdom, reign, and throne are used 1,300 times in the Old Testament. They're used in every book but three. The first instance is Genesis. The last instance is Malachi. It is a dominant theme in the Old Testament. It's a dominant theme in the New Testament. King, kingdom, reign, and rule are used 130 times in most of the New Testament books, beginning in Matthew, ending in Revelation, Paul uses it, Peter uses it, John uses it, but here's the problem. They never define it. They never define it. It'd be great if they did, but they, they didn't. And most believers would be very hard-pressed to define what it means to talk about the kingdom or living in the kingdom or encountering God's kingdom presence. We can talk about using those words. We don't know what that means. So I want to define it for you in as concise a way as I can. God's kingdom rule is his all God's kingdom is his all-encompassing rule over all things. His kingdom is his all-inclusive reign over all places, all peoples, all things for all times. And we're going to focus for a second on the all places, all peoples, all things for all times, just for a second, so you get a flavor for what this rule is all about. I want you to think for a moment about the temporal component, about it being his rule over all times. Jesus' kingdom rule is taking place right here, right now, in this room. He rules right here in the present, but we also know he will rule later. 
The, the New Testament talks about a millennial rule coming in Revelation chapter 19. Jesus will set up a millennial reign. God will usher in a new heaven and a new earth. Jesus will rule in those places. He will be king in those places. So the kingdom is future, no doubt. But it's also immediately present. And it's, it's a place that we can enter into. Okay, so what about the all places component? God's kingdom rule is everywhere. I've, I've been fond of saying that God's kingdom rule is like the air that we breathe. When you uh, wake up in the morning, you don't go grab your air machine. You anticipate that air will be available to you because we live in an atmosphere where air is available. And so, as we breathe it in, we, we breathe in the air. God's kingdom is like that. You live in the midst of God's kingdom rule where it's all around you right now like the air that we breathe. To use another illustration, we were at the Oklahoma uh, Aquarium and the turtle was having a very good time in the water. Well, he's surrounded by an envelope of water as are fish surrounded by envelopes of water. Well, God's kingdom is the same way. In God's kingdom reality, you live and you move and you have your being. As a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of that kingdom and His power and presence is immediately available to you all time. Let's think about the all peoples component uh, for a second. The all peoples component. God's kingdom is always on the move. It's always on the move. And what's amazing is that when God's kingdom breaks through, it unifies people. Now, we live in a very fractured society where it's like tribalism. There are people on the left who feel one way. There are people on the right who feel another way. There are tribes that get angry at each other and they duke it out on Facebook. Now we have sub-tribes of tribes and sub-tribes and sub-tribes of tribes and it gets very complicated, and people get very angry at each other, but what happens when God's kingdom breaks through is amazing because people realize, wait a second, my identity is not formed by this earthly tribe. It's formed by the Lord Jesus himself. And so you can have a former Palestinian terrorist who comes to Christ, and you can have a Messianic Jew who's come to Christ, and they love each other in the body of Christ, because the kingdom is above everything. And when God's kingdom is breaking through into a group of people, they focus on the dominant aspect of Jesus' kingdom rule. That's amazing when that happens. But God's kingdom offers us a new citizenship. So God's kingdom is His comprehensive rule over all places, all peoples, all things for all times. Now, what's, here's what's really cool. When you live in the context of that rule, good things happen. Good things happen. So what does God's present kingdom mean for you? It means the power of the Spirit is always presence, present. The resource of prayer is always there. Supernatural love is always ready to be received. Angelic hosts are always ready to act. Power for healing is ready to flow forth. Power forgiveness is available even for the hardest of hearts. Power for, for spiritual warfare is present, and power to understand the Scriptures is there, and a zillion other things. 
when you're living in the midst of God's kingdom reality, there are supernatural resources that are immediately available to you. So here's the amazing opportunity that we have. You have the potential to see God's kingdom power break into your present situation. That's the whole point of that line in the Lord's Prayer that goes like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When Jesus tells us to pray that, what he's, what he's saying is, I want you to pray that God's kingdom reality would break into your situation right now in the present, in the midst of the mundane aspects of your life. God, may your kingdom power break in right here and right now, today, in this situation that I face. So the Christian life is about living on earth in such a way that God's kingdom power is breaking through today and tomorrow and the next day. With that in mind, let's go back to the genealogy. And uh, I want you to know that the genealogy is designed to tell you a story. I want to tell you the story of the genealogy. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In one verse, he has signaled the fact that this genealogy is designed to tell a story. So let me, <clears throat> let me tell you the story behind the genealogy to shed light on this. Uh, <clears throat> the genealogy uh, is 1, 1 through 17, and here's the point of a genealogy. Before the YouTube era, if you wanted to know about a baseball player, what did you do? You got the sports magazines and you read the statistics. Or you got baseball cards and you read the statistics. So when I was a kid, when I was a kid, Al Kaline of the Detroit Tigers was my favorite player, and I always wanted to get the stats so that I could prove that Al Kaline was better than Carl Yastrzemski of the Boston Red Sox. It was numbers. It was pictures on a page. Do you do that anymore? Not so much. We live in the YouTube era. In the YouTube era, you look at highlight reels on YouTube. So you got Mike Trout who's an amazing ball player, and he has amazing highlights. Like every year he's got highlights, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017. He's amazing. And you get to know about a ball player in the YouTube era by going to your computer. Well, what did you do if you wanted to find out about a person in the ancient world? You went to their genealogy. And their genealogies were constructed not as precise father, son, father, son, father, son, father, son, father, son, or father, daughter, father, daughter, father, daughter. Weren't constructed like that. They were constructed editorially so that they would tell stories about the person, highlighting who that person was and what that person was like. Now, Matthew's genealogy is designed primarily to say Jesus is the king. He has legal right to rule. But what's going on in the genealogy is that the genealogy is given so that we know the culture of the kingdom. What's the culture of Jesus' kingdom like? We know that kings have the right to rule. But what would make me want to live underneath that kingdom rule? What is the culture of the kingdom really like? 
So let me give you a couple of ideas about the culture of the kingdom. First, I want to tell you that the kingdom, the Jesus kingdom culture is a culture of love. It is a culture of radical, over-the-top, outrageous, lavish love. That's the kingdom culture. Now, how do we know that from the genealogy? The reason why is that before Mary is mentioned, there are four women mentioned in the genealogy, and they're mentioned very prominently, and they're mentioned in such a way that we would say, yes, yes, they are included. But let me tell you something. In the first century, this was shocking because in the first century, you did not include women in your genealogy. Women in the first century were second-class citizens. They were relegated to lower posts in society. They had fewer legal rights. They had fewer religious rights. You wouldn't put them in a genealogy, and yet Matthew, Matthew puts them there. Three of these women are Gentile women. In the first century, you divided up society into Jew and Gentile. Jewish, good. Gentile, bad. Three of these four women are Gentiles. Ordinarily, that would have been a big mark against you. Moreover, three of these women had been involved in some form of sexual sin. You would not, you would not highlight people with maybe questionable character in a genealogy of the king. You wouldn't do that. And yet, Matthew does that. He includes four people with three marks against them. They are of the wrong sex, the wrong race, and the wrong character. Now, Matthew's not just doing that randomly. It's not like he's going, oh, let's see. Okay, I'm going to include her. Yeah, I'm going to include her. Yeah, I guess I'll, I, I guess I'll include her. He's not doing this, this randomly. He's doing this to make a point about the culture of the kingdom. So, what is that point? The point is this. The king loves people even in their imperfections. The king loves people even in their pain. The king loves even the neediest among us. The king loves the downcast, the rejected, the let down, and the failed. He loves the nations. Yes, all people of all different races, he loves them, and he includes them in his kingdom. The choice of these four women is a statement about the culture of the kingdom. Kingdom culture is a culture of radical, over-the-top, outrageous love. Now, contrast that with the king who's known as Herod the Great. Herod the Great was king during the time that Jesus is being born. Herod the Great was not a good guy. He was not a good guy. Herod the Great was a guy who killed a couple of wives, killed a few of his children. Uh, he was paranoid. He was an awful individual. And so when we think about Jesus being the king and the culture of the kingdom, people were thinking about the culture of Herod's kingdom, and it wasn't good. So we're contrasting the culture of Matthew's statement with the kingdom of, of Herod, radical, radical difference. Let's go, back to, let's go back to Rahab, Tamar, 
Ruth and Bathsheba for a moment. Imagine that these four are in a small group. And imagine that they're talking about, in heaven, small group in heaven. Imagine they're, they're talking about King Jesus. Uh, what would these women say about what it's like, you know, to, to be in the culture of King Jesus? Here's Tamar, who had a story of attempted prostitution, and Rahab, who was a professional prostitute, and Ruth, who was an immigrant of a despised culture, and Bathsheba, who endured, think about this, she endured the pain of being married to a man who killed her former husband. And all four of these women are in heaven in a small group describing the culture of the kingdom brought on by King Jesus. What would they, what would they say about Jesus? They would say Jesus is the king who lifts up the broken. He's the king who restores wrecked lives. And to live in Jesus' kingdom realm is to experience lavish, over-the-top, abundant, outrageous love. Love. So Matthew is constructing a genealogy uh, to prove that Jesus is the king. But he constructs this genealogy to prove that the culture of the kingdom is a culture of radical, unconditional love. Now Matthew is doing something else with the genealogy as well. Not only is it about love, it's about power. It's about power. So let me give you some, some background. Um, Matthew includes a man by the name of Jeconiah in his genealogy. Jeconiah. You, I don't know if you've ever heard of his name before. But here's Jeconiah from 2 Kings 24 verse 9. Jehoiachin, who's also known as Jeconiah and Coniah, Jehoiachin or Jeconiah, did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. This guy did not reign for that many, that many months. How bad can you be in only a few months of your reign? Apparently really bad. <laughs> because Jeremiah 22 verse 30 says, Write this man, Jehoiachin, who is Jeconiah, write him down as childless. He is a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David, or ruling again in Judah. Uh-oh. We got a big problem. Because this guy is in the genealogy of Jesus. And Jeremiah just said that not one of this man's descendants is going to sit on the throne of David or rule again in Judah. It's like, oh, darn. Like, God just shot himself in the foot, maybe? Because now Jesus can't sit on the throne of David? Is that, is that what happened? No, it's not what happened. Let me tell you a little bit more about Jeconiah. God says, this guy is going to be like a shattered jar. It's, it's like I'm going to take the signet ring of kingship off of Jeconiah's hand, and I'm going I'm to throw it down. Not one of his descendants is going to be king on my throne. Wait, so, like, isn't that the point of the genealogy? That Jesus is a descendant of Jeconiah? What, what happened? I'll tell you what happened. Virgin birth happened. Virgin birth happened. The point of the genealogy is it is impossible, humanly speaking, for a descendant of Jeconiah to sit on the throne of David, humanly speaking. 
You know, what God does is he engineers an impossible situation. He makes it possible. He engineers virgin birth. And now we have somebody who is not of Joseph's physical seed, but in Joseph's legal line. God just pulled off the impossible. And that's what kingdom culture is all about. Kingdom culture is about God pulling off the impossible. And this genealogy shows that kingdom culture is not only about unconditional, over-the-top, radical, unconditional love, but it's about God's kingdom power breaking through and doing the possible in situations that are impossible. Matthew is trying to do something in this genealogy. It's not just a, a genealogy that's a dry, technical genealogy. He's saying something about the culture of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. Kingdom culture is a kingdom of love and a kingdom of power. Now, that raises a question, like how important should this be in our thinking? Well, Matthew does something else in this genealogy. Uh, Matthew wants to show us that our entire worldview as followers of Christ need to be dominated by kingdom thinking. Now, why do, why do I say that? I say that because of the way he constructs the genealogy. He says there are 14 generations from this person to this person, 14 generations from this person to this event, 14 generations from this event to this event. 14, 14, 14. But we got a, now we got, we got another problem. Because if you look back at the genealogies of people in the ancient world who were part of this genealogy, it's clear there were more than 14 generations. So did Matthew not know that? Did Matthew make a mistake? No. No. Remember, genealogies in the ancient world were not technical genealogies, they were crafted to create a story. And Matthew is selectively taking people to craft a story. And David is at the center of the story. Kingdom is at the center of the story. Notice something interesting. David's Hebrew name has a value of 14. They didn't have Arabic numbers back then. You know, like, like we have one two, three. They didn't have Arabic numbers back then. They crafted their numbers differently. Numbers were important. David's name has a value of 14. So when you have these 14 generations, what Matthew is saying is we need to have a kingdom-shaped worldview. You look at that genealogy and you say, what does that genealogy mean to me? It means God is a God of radical love. God is a God of infinite power. And my thinking needs to be dominated by love and power. That's the literary strategy that he's using to show us. The kingdom is an entire worldview in which we must determine to live. Now, <clears throat> one more thing about the genealogy. How often should we maintain this worldview? The worldview of the kingdom culture? It's, it needs to be our entire worldview. How, how often should we think about it? Should be like maybe once a week or maybe once a month or maybe on Sunday? How often should we think about it? 
If you go back to the beginning, what you realize is that it was meant to be memorized. Like if you were to give somebody the top 25 verses in the Bible to, be, to, to memorize, you probably, wouldn't, you probably wouldn't go to the genealogy of Matthew, would you? You probably wouldn't say, man, it's so awesome, the genealogy of Matthew. You've got to memorize that. It's going to really help you in time of need. And yet Matthew constructs this genealogy to be memorized. Why? Because he wants us to embrace the reality of kingdom culture. Kingdom culture is a kingdom, is a culture of radical, over-the-top, lavish, unconditional love, and it's a, it's a culture of power to overcome the impossible, and it's a culture where Jesus is centric, center, at the center of who we are and all that we aspire to. Kingdom culture is a culture that we should be thinking about all the time. So when you pull the details together, the key idea is this. When we meditate on Jesus' kingdom culture, we are increasingly able to encounter His love and power. To put it another way, when you remember that you live all the time, 24-7, in God's kingdom realm, He releases His kingdom love and His kingdom power upon us. With that in mind, let me give you some takeaways. The biggest lesson is a lesson about love. It's a lesson about love. I say that because if you look at the whole literary strategy of the genealogy, it's clear that it's crafted so that love comes first in the genealogy with the inclusion of these four women, with Mary V being at the end. Now, <clears throat> let me flesh this out with, with, with some ideas specifically. First, I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you to visualize what it means to live in the kingdom. Visualize it. Jesus knew that it was important that we visualized it. Because in Matthew 13, Jesus gives us parables of the kingdom. And in those parables, He says the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. He knew that it would be difficult for us to understand the current expression of God's kingdom now as well as later. So He gives us illustrations. That tells me we've got to work at visualizing what it's like to live in God's kingdom realm. So I gave you two illustrations a moment ago. Living in God's kingdom realm is like living, breathing air. Air's all around us. His kingdom's all around us. It's like water to a fish. Water's all around the fish. Let me give you another illustration. It's like um, Wi-Fi signals. If you could visualize Wi-Fi signals, they would look sort of like that. A little scary, isn't it? That all around us, if you could visualize them, there are Wi-Fi signals all over this room here, and you live in the presence of Wi-Fi signals, and if any of you were to say, I feel so powerless, my Wi-Fi is off, I can't get on Facebook, I can't tweet anybody, I feel powerless right now, you would be wrong because Wi-Fi is working in here, okay? But you might not tap into it. God's kingdom is all around us. His angelic realm is all around us. His Holy Spirit is here, present among us. God's kingdom is, is all around us. Are you conscious of the fact that it's there, and are you tapping, tapping into it? 
If we could see Wi-Fi signals, you know, it would freak us out. If we could see God's kingdom realm around us, it would freak us out. But we're called to live by faith in the reality that He is here and around us. Let me give you another illustration of visualizing God's kingdom, kingdom realm. You know, living in the kingdom is, involves an encounter with love. Have you ever walked into a room and you see two people in love and, and the, the, the sense of love is tangible around the couple? That, that sense is tangible. Remember, falling in love with my, <clears throat> my wife on the campus of Southern Methodist University I can remember being in the library, and I'm studying, and I see her walk in, walking toward me, and it's like, oh my gosh, love just entered this room. I'm feeling the atmosphere of love. Uh, on another occasion, my daughter and I, my daughter and I were at Cafe Nero in Oxford, England for the afternoon. This is in 2007. I was reading my book. She was reading her book. We were sitting on the couch. My arm was around her. We read together and talked intermittently for three and a half hours. And every time I go back into Cafe Nero in Oxford, I think about that time I had with my daughter. One time I, I took a picture of it and I said, thinking about you today. That day was one of the best days of my life. There was love in that coffee shop. Conversely, you go into a home and people are arguing and bickering and fighting it's almost like the, the contempt is an intangible thing. You can't see it, but you, but you can feel it. God's kingdom is the same way. It is always around us. The question is, do we tap into God's love and God's power? Well, to visualize it, you've got to continually remind yourself of this. So sometimes here's what I do. I envision that I'm speaking to, the, to the, my Abba Father, I just say things like this. God, I thank you that I'm your adopted son. I thank you that you are my Abba Father. I thank you that I am your beloved son in whom you are well pleased. I, I say, Lord, I, I experience the lavish, over-the-top beauty of your love right now. Whether I feel it or not, I embrace it. I say, Lord, I thank you that you are pleased with me. I could be in a bad place. I could be in a place of temptation. I could be a play, in a place in the aftermath of sin. And I, I, I can receive the lavish, over-the-top, unconditional love of God who's calling me back into fellowship with himself. But I'm telling you, the first thing you gotta do is you gotta begin with visualizing that you live and move and exist in God's kingdom realm all the time. In Him we live and move and have our being. Where can I go from my spirit, David says? No matter where I go, you're there. As a follower of Jesus, no matter where you go, God's kingdom is there. That's why we go to the second takeaway. You take God's kingdom with you wherever you go. You are a conduit of God's kingdom. And you take that kingdom with you wherever you go. Remember what Jesus said to Nathaniel in John chapter 1. He said, Truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Remember, the, the, Jacob's ladder was, is what this is referenced to. And Jacob, the schemer in the Old Testament, 
the brother of Esau, Jacob the schemer who defrauded him of his birth, birthright. Jacob lived in a totally horizontal worldview. It's like, I got to make life work on my own because nobody else is going to help me. I'm going to do everything myself. I'm going to make it work on my own. And then Jacob at this event all of a sudden realizes, whoa, there is an open heaven and the God of the universe is, is coming up and down, pouring out power and assistance to those who recognize his open heaven. Jesus takes it one step further now, and he says, he says Nathaniel, let me, <laughs> let me just tell you something. You're going to see heaven opened and power coming down upon me, the king. You realize that the word son of man is a, king, a kingdom word, is a kingship word. It comes from Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14, where God the Father hands a kingdom to the one called the son of man. Jesus might as well have said, you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending on me, the king, and I'm the one who brings the kingdom into your midst. And so the takeaway is you, you, you bring God's kingdom with you wherever you go. So just like you vi visualize the kingdom, I, I ask you to visualize the inbreaking of God's kingdom into your, into your life. You, you have the ability, it's like you can co-partner with Jesus to bring his kingdom reality into any situation. So let me, let me give you some specifics. The kingdom is you being a teacher in the power of the Holy Spirit, providing the kind of education that opens kids' minds and allows them to understand their gifts. That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. That's, that's spiritual doing that. The kingdom is you being a business leader in the power of the Spirit and you learning all you can about leadership so that you can bring really good leadership in your organization. That's spiritual. That's you bringing the kingdom to bear in a tangible way in your business. The kingdom is a mother staying up late at night, pouring out kindness and love upon one of her sick kids, knowing that she's going to go to work the next day and be really tired. But she's manifesting the kingdom in that point of service. The kingdom is a palliative care nurse, loving a person in the last moments of their life loving a person into heaven, loving a person into the arms of Jesus as that person is dying. That's the kingdom. That's you bringing the kingdom to bear tangibly in a situation. The kingdom is a teenager being on a mission trip, loving a little child with, with autism, loving that child even though that little Christian Boy or girl knows, I'll never see this autistic child again. I'll never see him again, but I'm, I'm going to be a conduit of God's kingdom love in this particular situation. That's the kingdom. You, you can bring God's kingdom reality into any situation that you are in by tangibly serving in His name and sensing, wait, I'm, I'm a conduit of the kingdom here. I can, I can do this differently. What's cool about the kingdom, you take it with you wherever you go, but it takes on maybe a little bit of a different flavor with different people. You know, a 15-year-old boy needs his dad to play ball with him 
as an expression of the kingdom. That's spiritual. A 75-year-old cancer survivor needs his wife to hold his hand through another round of chemotherapy. That's, that's the kingdom being brought to bear tangibly in a situation. When you bring God's kingdom to bear into these situations, you are doing something tangible but trusting that the king is going to pour out his kingdom love and power through you. Here's a third takeaway. Third takeaway is to intentionally receive the love of your Abba Father. Just receive His love. Receive His love. Think about these four women again, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. According to first century standards, they had lots of marks against them. Remember, they were women, and in first century culture, they were second-class citizens. They were Gentile women. They were of the wrong race, according to that culture. And they had, they had sinful pasts. They had marks against them. And yet the genealogy suggests that they are in immensely honored positions. They're honored in this genealogy. And my conviction is that you will never understand the kingdom as in its present form unless you're willing to receive the unconditional love of God. Part of encountering kingdom reality is encountering the unconditional love of God. So let me, let me have you picture this. Imagine your new grandparent and your new grandchild is deposited in your arms. How do you feel about that child? How do you feel about that child? That, that child has not gotten A's on their second grade tests yet. That child has not thrown strikeouts in their little league. That child has not gotten into law school yet. Are you looking at that child and going, well, we'll see how you turn out. We'll see how you turn out. No. You love that child because that child is yours. It came from your child. And you love that child unconditionally. That's a picture of how God loves you. Are you willing to receive love like that? Imagine you're a parent and your child has been lost at Disney World. Your child has been lost for an hour, then an hour and a half, now two hours, and you're panicked and you're frantic, and you're thinking, am I ever going to see my child again? And you're just you're freaking out because your anxiety is just, just through, through the roof. And then two hours after your child is lost, you see your child running from 25 yards away, running with all of their might, and they run up into your arms, and you embrace your child. What do you say to your child at that point? I love you. I love you. I was afraid. I was afraid. Now, can you imagine any, any, any parent going, I'm really angry at you. Or a parent, a parent who says, I'm not going to hug you now. I'm not, I'm not going to be nice to you now. You made me afraid. Is the God of the universe going to do that to you, even you, a prodigal child? Is the God of the universe going to go, yeah, you expect me to love you after what you've done to me? I don't think so. God's not going to do that. God's going to welcome you like the father, father of the prodigal son welcomed his son. The father of the prodigal son ran to his son, grabbed him around the neck, began to kiss him repeatedly. That's the Abba Father 
love of God. And you will not understand kingdom reality unless you're willing to receive the unconditional, over-the-top, lavish, outrageous love of God. I'll give you another example. Imagine you're a teenager, and you're going to die unless you get a kidney transplant. Your father submits to a test. He's a match. Your father submits to surgery, and you get your father's good kidney. They sew you back up. You're good to go. How do you feel toward your father? Your father just sacrificed himself so that you could live. The Abba Father love of God is outrageous. It's radical. It's lavish. It's over the top. You will not understand kingdom reality until you are willing to receive that kind of love. Or imagine you've had a terrible illness. You wake up, you find your parent has been sleeping on the floor all night by your bed. And you think, ah, I can relax because my, my father is there on the floor sleeping beside me. That's the Abba Father love of God. Look, people who live well in God's kingdom allow themselves to receive God's radical, unconditional love. So let's, let's think about, about the genealogy. Think about the genealogy. The genealogy <clears throat> is not meant to be a precisely accurate genealogy like you would have on Ancestry.com. It's not meant to be that. They didn't do that in the ancient world. What they did was they used genealogies as vehicles to tell stories and express values. Matthew uses this genealogy to say Jesus is the king. But not just that. He's saying, Jesus is the king, and kingdom culture is amazing. It's a culture of love, it's a culture of power, and it's a culture that should dominate our thinking all the time so that we're constantly living in the midst of God's kingdom reality. Now, one of the things we want to do th this fall in this series is bring some stories to this. And so we've had a lot of people go through our healing prayer ministry, and they have some pretty amazing stories about some emotional healing, some physical healing. And we're going to feature some of those stories over the course of this series because we want you to see that the kingdom culture is a culture where you are anticipating God breaking through. You're praying for God's breakthrough. You're anticipating Him doing new things and fresh things. The culture of the kingdom is a culture of new things happening and fresh things happening. That's why in Revelation it says they sang a new song. Like, okay, let's sing Shout to the Lord for the trillionth time. I love Shout to the Lord, but a trillion times? No, there's always new things that are being sung in heaven because kingdom culture is even breaking through there into fresh and new things. So here's, what, here's where I want you to begin. This, this week, over the next seven days, I want to encourage you to pray the Lord's Prayer. Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when you pray it, what you're meaning is, God, may your kingdom break through right here, right now, in my family, in my work, in my leisure pursuits, wherever it happens to be, may your kingdom break through here today 
And may I see that happen. Let's pray. Father, as we begin to transition to communion, we just want to express our gratitude that in you we live and move and have our being. We are citizens of your kingdom. You transferred us from the domain of dark. You, you delivered us from the domain of darkness and you transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved son. Lord, the kingdom of your son is a place of love. He's your beloved son. And so, Father, we, we ask, Lord, that over the course of this series, we might learn to live in kingdom power, in kingdom reality. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and he, he broke the bread, and he said, this is, this is my body broken for you. Do this in memory of me. He also took the cup after supper, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Do this in memory of me. We're going to do something a little, little creative this morning. Um, there's going to be some red stones uh, in a bowl near, the, near where the bread is. And, uh, you know, it's really easy to take communion on a Sunday and just forget about it on a Monday. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do is, after you've taken the bread and the cup, to take one, one of the red stones and put it in your pocket all week. And uh, just keep it with you in, in your pocket all week. And when you, when you take it out, just remember, you know, I took, I took communion on Sunday. And I walk in newness of life because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Use this stone as a way to remember what you did. Jesus wants us to remember, right? To remember his, his death when we take communion. So use this stone as a way to remember what you did today. I took communion, and I now walk in newness of life. This is not a biblical thing. This is just a creative way to help you think about what you did today and what it means for you during the week. So you come and take communion as you feel ready, and if you want to light a candle to celebrate answered prayer, you can do that as well. Let's worship as we take communion. All creatures of God and King.